Nexa, formerly known as Answer One, is a leading virtual receptionist and answering service provider for law firms. Learn more by giving them a call at 800-267-9371 or online at nexa.com. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. When Jim Sandman joined the Legal Services Corporation as president in 2011 after a four-year stint as general counsel for the District of Columbia Public Schools and 30 years at Arnold and Porter, the legal profession was at a crossroads. The Great Recession had led to massive layoffs, unemployment, and underemployment, as well as declining profits and revenue. A new normal was starting to take hold, one where clients were demanding that their lawyers work more efficiently, charge less, and demonstrate tangible results rather than just run up their billable hours. While some simply buried their heads in the sand and hoped that a return to the pre-recession days was just around the corner, Jim knew better. He embraced technology and convened a summit shortly after he became president of the LSC to explore ways to use technology to bridge the access to justice gap. It was during his tenure that the LSC produced its seminal work, finding that 86% of civil legal needs from low-income Americans in a given year were either inadequately addressed or not met at all. He also founded the Office of Data Governance and Analysis, to help legal aid organizations collect and analyze data and expand the congressional support for the LSC's Technology Initiative Grants Program. Incidentally, the team behind those grants was recently named as Legal Rebels for 2020. In January, Sandman stepped down as president of the LSC. He joins us today to look back at his career as well as talk about challenges low- to middle-income Americans continue to face regarding access to justice. Please welcome to the Legal Rebels podcast, Jim Sandman. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Victor. It's great to be with you. And before we begin, a quick thank you to our sponsor, Nexa Professional. So I wanted to begin by talking about your background a bit. What drew you to the LSC? Thirteen years ago, I made a decision to leave the private practice of law and the big law firm world that had been my home. For 30 years, I'd been in a big law firm. I decided that it was time to take up a new career in public service. My first stop, as you mentioned, was to be general counsel of the District of Columbia Public Schools when the then mayor of the District of Columbia was defeated in his bid for re-election and the chancellor, Michelle Rhee, was going to be moving on. I heard about the opening at the Legal Services Corporation. I thought that the position would provide an opportunity to pursue a mission I care deeply about, access to justice for low-income people and would give me a job that would draw on the management experience I had acquired both in practice. I I had been managing partner of my firm for 10 years and through other activities, including my term as president of the District of Columbia Bar. That combination of mission and job was very attractive to me. So looking back at your tenure, what is is something that you are most proud of? And on the flip side, is there anything that you wish you could have handled differently? Anything I'm proud of was the result of a team effort and nothing that I could or would claim credit for myself. I would uh, highlight several things. I think we succeeded over the last nine years in increasing bipartisan support for the mission of the Legal Services Corporation. LSC is the country's largest funder of civil legal aid programs for low-income people. We're the backbone of legal aid in the United States. We depend on an annual congressional appropriation, currently $440 million, to fund our work. And to get that appropriation, and ideally to increase it, 
you need to have broad bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. I think we had significant success in ensuring that people on Capitol Hill, that members of Congress, understand that legal aid, civil legal services, address a fundamental American value, access to justice, equal justice, regardless of income. There is no more fundamental American value than that. That is a nonpartisan value. I think the increase in support uh, that we've seen in votes in Congress, the increase in the funding that we've been appropriated, is an indication of progress in that regard. Having said that, we need way more money than we get currently. We're on the right track. I think that LSC's efforts in technology made substantial progress over the past nine years. As you mentioned, we convened a summit in two segments in 2012 and 2013 focused on exploring the potential for technology to move the United States toward providing some form of effective assistance to 100% of people with an essential civil legal need. That language was chosen very carefully. Some form of effective assistance for 100% of people with an essential civil legal need. That uh, concept reflects the reality that we don't have enough funding to provide a lawyer for everybody, but we should be aiming to provide some help, some significant help uh, to people, even if it isn't a personal lawyer for their problem. We need to get away from a world where so many people are turned away with no help of any kind. The summit developed a blueprint for trying to achieve that goal that includes the creation of statewide portals, online portals that provide easy access to resources across the state and function as a triage mechanism to direct people to the most appropriate level of service for their particular problem. The summit also recommended the further development of document assembly applications that work like TurboTax. They guide a user through a plain language interview and then use the answers to the questions posed to complete a court-approved form that the user can file. We recommended business process analysis, recognizing that you can't just uh, come in and automate processes if the processes are too complicated and not friendly to users. You have to start by analyzing what you're trying to do in the first place, simplifying it, and then applying the automation uh, to it. Many of those uh, recommendations have been implemented, but obviously there's more to be done. One of our successes in the pro bono area was the approval by Congress of a pro bono innovation fund, an annual line in our appropriation, currently four and a half million dollars, to fund innovative projects in pro bono that will bring more lawyers in private practice into the world of legal services to supplement the limited resources of legal aid programs. Finally, as you mentioned, we improved the use of data in the world of legal aid and established an Office of Data and Governance Analysis at LSC to improve the quality of data that legal aid programs generate to share that information broadly. On our website, you can now find a grantee data section that has detailed information about the work of the 132 legal aid programs that LSC funds with a goal of helping grantees and others make more informed decisions about how to allocate scarce resources to maximum effectiveness for people who need help. Gotcha. So, I mean, obviously our listeners 
will understand what you know the access to justice gap is and what it entails. But I guess for people who might not understand, for people who don't follow this issue closely, it seems as if you know there there are many. There, I mean, the ABA found that there were over 1.3 million lawyers in in the, in the United States as of last year, and that number has actually and and the rate of the rate of people becoming lawyers has actually outpaced the, the growth in the, in the general population. So it seems that there are plenty of lawyers out there and with plenty of work to go around. So it, it, so what is it in your mind that is, or just based on based on what you found and based on your experience, what is it that's kind of causing this access to justice, such a big access to justice gap? Because you felt because you would think that with so many lawyers out there, there should be enough work to go around. Is it just a matter of fees being too high? Is it a matter of you know people not thinking that they need lawyers, or is it not wanting to? get involved with lawyers that they don't have to? Like, what do you think is sort of the main problem here? The main problem is inadequate funding for the lawyers needed to provide the service. There are lots of lawyers out there, but unless you expect them to work for free for people who can't afford to pay for them, you're going to find a mismatch between demand and supply. The number of, of lawyers is an imperfect measure of the supply necessary to meet the demand because the demand is coming from people who can't afford to pay, and many of them can't afford to pay anything. So we need to increase the funding to provide some financial support for the lawyers that we might want to engage to address the justice gap. We obviously uh, can do more to improve pro bono participation, but pro bono will always uh, be a supplement, never a substitute for adequately funded legal aid. The answer is funding. Gotcha. We'll be right back to our chat with Jim Sandman after a quick message from our sponsor. If you're missing calls, appointments, and potential clients, it's time to work with Nexa Professional. More than just an answering service, Nexa's virtual receptionists are available 24-7 to schedule appointments, qualify leads, respond to emails, integrate with your firm software, and much more. Nexa ensures your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-267-9371 or visit them at nexa.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back. We're talking to former LSC president Jim Sandman. So you had talked about trying to make sure that every American gets some kind of legal assistance, maybe not necessarily a lawyer, but some kind of legal assistance. So so where does technology fit into that? And can you talk a little bit about why you decided to embrace technology? Because it's something that a lot of lawyers would be wary of or not necessarily uh, be so quick to embrace technology. Why did you decide to make that leap? Technology provides a very efficient and cost-effective way to get essential information into the hands of people who would otherwise have no information at all. The availability of online access to resources helps to eliminate what used to be a monopoly on information held by lawyers where only a lawyer could tell you what you needed to know about your legal problem. If you tried to do your own research online, to find out what your rights and remedies might be, good luck. That was incredibly difficult for a person not trained in the law to do. But you can use technology now to deliver very focused information about the most common problems affecting low-income people to them directly, information about evictions and foreclosures and child custody and child support proceedings, how to get a protection order against an abuser, providing a how-to information checklist Instructional videos can make a huge difference in giving people access to information they need to have any hope of availing themselves of the justice system. To kind of look forward off that point, 
What do you think will it take for tech to get more widespread acceptance within the legal community? Do you think we're heading there already, or do you think more more progress needs to be made before we get to that point? More progress needs to be made. <laughs> it's uh, definitely what it is so slow. I I don't understand why the pace of adoption isn't greater. I think I, I don't think there are enough. I don't think individual lawyers feel enough incentives to embrace technology to improve their efficiency and effectiveness as they could if they use the the tools that are out there. Part of it is just unfamiliarity. Uh, change is hard. People get comfortable with their way of, of doing things. And if it's working for them, if they're making a good living uh, doing it, what's their reason to, uh, to change? So I think we need better instructional tools. I, I think we need to do a better job of explaining to lawyers how their lives will be better, how their practices will be better and easier if they embrace uh, technology. There's nothing like peer-to-peer selling, I find, when it comes to technology. To have one lawyer who may be more adept at technology and have adopted more sit down and and demonstrate to another lawyer in very easy-to-understand terms how technology can improve practice. When people see it and they understand that this uh, isn't unduly complicated, that it's easy to operate and will improve not only the quality of service for clients, but the work experience of lawyers will see a higher level of adoption. But it's a big challenge. I I think that law stands out as a profession, as an industry, where there has been, compared to other industries, relatively little transformation of the manner of practice because of technology. Let me throw you a hypothetical. I mean, lawyers love hypotheticals, obviously. So if I were a newly minted JD graduate who you know, was just about to, or was just thinking about what they're going to do after graduating from law school, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm in the process of getting my JD then, what would you recommend for my career path if my main goal was to try to help address this, the access to justice gap and to represent people who can't afford access to uh, legal help or things along those lines? Would you recommend that I try to get work on my skill set to try to go to a go to a big firm or go get trial experience with a public interest firm or would you recommend that I have a technology background so that I can try to like come up with ways to uh, bridge the gap that way like what do you think would be the best path going forward for 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 someone like me if I if if I wanted to do that I I don't think there's a single best path it it depends on the circumstances of the individual lawyer starting out in practice some lawyers many lawyers starting out in practice have huge educational debt and they have to be concerned, and legitimately so, with earning a living at a level that will allow them to reduce their debt. And if they make that their primary goal as they start out in practice, I get that. That's that's okay. If they do pay down their debt quickly, they'll be they'll sooner arrive at a position where they can do what they want to do rather than what they need to do to meet their financial obligations. I'd uh, recommend getting to that point as quickly as possible. But there will be different paths for different people. There will be some people who will be able to go immediately into full-time legal aid work. They'll be able to get a a fellowship, some kind of stipend. They may have loan repayment forgiveness that alleviates some of the financial burdens. But many people won't be able to do that. And there are also limited jobs available in the world of legal aid because of inadequate funding. People who go into private practice can do pro bono work, and I'd recommend that strongly. No matter what else you're doing in in practice, you can and should find the time to do pro bono work to supplement the limited resources of legal aid organizations. There are pro bono opportunities everywhere, no matter 
where you're practicing geographically, no matter what your practice setting. Uh, I live and work in Washington, D.C., for example, and there is a federal government attorney pro bono program here, the biggest single source of staffing for the projects of the D.C. Bar Pro Bono Program is government lawyers, people who are already providing public service but who volunteer their time to staff clinics and handle cases for low-income people in the District of, of Columbia. Or you could, you could do what I did. I worked in private practice for 30 years, and then I uh, am now in the 13th year of a second career in, in public service. A career is long. You have opportunities to help out in different ways at different points in your career. And I came into it full-time relatively late in my career, but I've been doing it full-time for some time now. So uh, keep an open mind. I would never attempt to tell any person, here's how you need to start your career, and here's what you can do right now today to begin to narrow the justice gap. The, the short answer to your question is all of the above. <laughs> All right, great. And looking forward, um, obviously some state bars now are starting to experiment with having non-JDs provide legal advice in limited and regulated instances. Meanwhile, others have called for more radical changes, including eliminating unlawful practice of law regulations and the ban on non-lawyer ownership of law firms. What do you think the future will look like? I mean, do you think those things are really uh, are really possible, and will they you know, will they do a lot to try to, to to bridge this access to justice gap, or do you think you know there's still a lot of fighting and a lot of struggle that has to go before these kind of things are even a possibility? The sooner, the better. I I think we need to do all of those things and do them as quickly as possible. Most lawyers don't realize that in 74% of civil cases in state courts today, at least one of the parties does not have a lawyer. The numbers are even higher, the percentages are even higher in certain categories of high-volume, high-stakes cases like evictions or child support cases, where more than 90% of, of, of uh, tenants, say, in eviction cases will not have a lawyer, even though more than 90% of landlords do have a lawyer. When people are forced to navigate the legal system without the benefit of a lawyer, they confront a system that was created by lawyers for lawyers on the assumption that everybody's got a lawyer. It's a system that works pretty well if you do have a lawyer and horribly if you don't. Everything about the system, from the language of the law to the forms that are used to the rules of civil procedure to the rules of evidence, all of those were created with lawyers in mind. How in the world is a person who doesn't have a JD or membership in the bar, or likely not a, a college degree or even a high school diploma. How are they supposed to figure that out? So I think it's important that we begin to make other forms of help available to people. I think a well-trained, competent, well-educated, regulated paralegal could be of enormous assistance to the person who's facing eviction who otherwise is consigned to no help of any kind because they can't afford a lawyer in the interest of protecting people from unscrupulous practitioners and a substandard service, we've decreed that if you can't afford a lawyer, you get nothing. What kind of public protection is that? What kind of consumer protection is that? There has to be a way to provide some form of competent help to those who, who can't afford a lawyer. Similarly, I think that there needs to be more access to integrated, holistic legal services, comprehensive services where lawyers work with other services providers in, in the um, 
work they're doing for their uh, their clients. And if that involves sharing fees with people who aren't lawyers, I don't think the world is going to end. I, I think there's a way to accommodate that in a regulatory environment that's significantly more flexible than what we have today. We need to look at the reality of how the justice system isn't working for people today. It is failing millions of people every year who can't afford a lawyer. We have to do better. Now that you've stepped down from your position as LLC president, what do you plan on doing with your time and do you plan to continue to speak out about increasing access to justice for Americans? I plan to take on a full-time position with a law school that would give me a platform to continue to address issues of access to justice, to speak and to advocate, to address issues like regulatory reform in the legal profession, like those that we just discussed. I plan to remain very active, uh, just in a different forum. You have not heard the end of me. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, those were all the questions that I had. Thank you for joining us today, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Victor. And congrats again on an outstanding career as uh, LSE president. We look forward to uh, seeing what your next act will be. Thank you. This has been the Legal Rebels podcast. My name is Victor Lee, signing out. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.